Germany, the middle of the night. Where is it? A Russian plane is taking children on holiday to Spain, but the pilots can't believe what they see heading towards them. air disasters of recent times. How could two planes collide over one of the most closely regulated areas in the world? Roll the tank with Charlie. Faulty technology or human error? <laughs> oh. June 2002 the city of Ufa in western Russia. Ufa is populated by both Christians and Muslims. This year, its most outstanding teenagers have been chosen to go on a two-week vacation organized by UNESCO near Barcelona in Spain. They are among the most clever, athletic, or artistic children of Ufa. Kirill Diktaryov is a 14-year-old prodigy He's been painting since he was four years old and has already had two public exhibitions. He's halfway through his new work. He was very good at painting. He felt colors. He received good reviews. The trip sounded very exciting. That's why we agreed that Kirill should go to Spain. He just graduated from grade nine. He needed some rest and it was a good opportunity for a summer holiday. Alina Hananova is a 12-year-old who's won several gymnastics competitions. We were very glad for her because, indeed, very smart and very talented children were flying there all extraordinary children in terms of their personalities. She studied very well, and she got only excellent marks. I remember that she was pleased to go on the trip. She loved getting ready for it. She was so excited. We purchased some clothes and some vacation stuff. <laughs> As she was born, I informed my husband and he cried because he was happy to have a daughter. The 46 children from Ufa, accompanied by a few teachers, leave on a train to Moscow. There, they're due to catch their flight to Barcelona. But in Moscow, things start to go wrong. The tourist agency accidentally takes the children to the wrong airport, so they miss their plane. They're terribly disappointed. While the agency tries to sort out the mess, 
the children go sightseeing in the Russian capital. It takes two days to charter another jet, but finally they're on their way to Barcelona. On July the 1st, 2002, the children from Ufa board their plane at a Moscow airport. The Kaloyevs are not part of the school group. They're going on a holiday to meet their father, who's an architect, and is finishing a project near Barcelona. No fewer than five Russians are flying this plane. The captain is Alexander Gross, who's been a pilot for over 30 years. Alexander had a good theoretical knowledge. He was very smart. Today, the first officer is Oleg Grigoriev. But actually, Grigoriev is the airline's chief pilot. On this trip, he'll be evaluating Captain Gross's flying. If you did something wrong, some captains would criticize you very rudely. Others would be very formal and polite. But Oleg Grigoriev would express his disapproval in a gesture, like that. Meaning, why on earth did you do that? Captain Gross is in command, but Captain Grigoriev is his supervisor. If it comes to the crunch, who will really be in charge? Seated in the left rear is Murat Itkulov, normally the first officer, but who's not officially on duty because Grigoriev is in his seat. Nevertheless, since he'll soon be promoted to captain, his opinions are considered. Murat was a very professional pilot. He loved to fly. Murat was interested in the new stuff in aviation and always kept up to date on the most progressive things brought in. Also on the flight deck are an experienced navigator and a flight engineer. Just before 11 that evening, Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 leaves Moscow. The plane is a Tupolev 154. Like most modern aircraft, it carries collision avoidance equipment called TCAS, or Traffic Collision Avoidance System. Descend, descend, descend. TCAS works because all commercial aircraft carry a transponder, which sends a constant stream of radio signals identifying them and saying where they are. TCAS listens in and calculates whether any of the planes is on a collision course. If they are, it will tell the pilot what action to take to avoid collision. If air traffic control should ever let them down, TCAS will be their last line of defense. Hundreds of miles away in Bergamo, Italy, a Boeing 757 is getting underway. It's flying for DHL, the international freight company, and is heading for their European base at Brussels in Belgium. The Russian Tupolev will cross its path over southern Germany. The Boeing has only two people aboard, Captain Paul Phillips, who's British, and First Officer Brandt Campioni, who's Canadian, and due to fly the next leg of the journey. The DHL takes off at six minutes past 11 on what will be its last journey.
10 to 8 at the Skyguide Area Control Center in Zurich, Switzerland. The busy day shift has ended and the night shift is reporting for work. Peter Nielsen is an experienced controller. He's been doing this job for eight years. The center regulates air traffic in southern Germany as well as northern Switzerland. Tonight, there are only two controllers on duty. But the traffic in their sector is light, and Nielsen's colleague decides to take a lengthy break, a common practice at Skyguide. Peter Nielsen is now responsible for all air traffic on two radar screens, which sit several feet apart. At 10 past 11, two technicians arrive. They inform Peter that Skyguide management has authorized them to carry out maintenance work on the main radar. While they do so, the screens will work much more slowly and will give no visual two-minute warning if planes are getting too close to each other. Tie into 933, route traffic in Algoy. Bavarian 350, descend flight level 270. The engineers now tell Peter Nielsen they have to shut down the telephone system as well. They switch over to the standby phones. No one realizes it yet, but the seeds of disaster have been sown. The Russian plane, filled with schoolchildren, is now over central Germany and flying towards Switzerland. Captain Grigoriev gets final clearance from the last German control center before they cross south into Switzerland. 128.05, Bravo Tango Charlie, 2937, goodbye. The German controller hands over the Russian plane to Skyguide, where Peter Nielsen is at the helm. Meanwhile, the DHL plane is climbing north over the Alps and is now entering Swiss airspace. Zurich, uh, radar, good evening. Dilmun 611, I'm climbing flight level 260, direct Obesi. Captain Paul Phillips of the DHL requests clearance to climb to a higher altitude. The thinner air there will mean less air resistance and save fuel. Roger, climb flight level 320. Direct Tango Golf Oscar and requesting 360. Thanks, it's available. Tillman 611, climb flight level 360. The DHL reaches flight level 360, or 36,000 feet, the same altitude as the Russian plane. And they're on a collision course, but they're many miles apart. So far, no danger. Now the assistant gives Peter Nielsen a new flight strip. An Airbus Aero Lloyd Flight 1135 is flying to the airport of Friedrichshafen nearby. It's going to increase Peter's workload dramatically over the next five minutes and have him switching from one screen to another. Peter tries to dial the airport control tower at Friedrichshafen to discuss handing over the Aero Lloyd flight to them, but the line is dead. He tries a second time. The phones aren't working. Zürich, uh, Grüezi, uh, 
The Aeroloid pilot is trying to make contact with Peter. He has to leave the Russian pilots unattended. But the Russian pilot is also calling him on the other screen. Aeroloid 1135, Roger. Call you back. Uh, station calling. Say again, please. Ah, Zurich. Good evening. Bravo Tango Charlie, 2937. Level 360. Bravo Tango Charlie, 2937. Squawk uh, 7520. The Aero Lloyd is calling again. Yeah, expect so. Call you back shortly. Now another plane needs him. A Thai Airways flight heading north. Thai into 933. Contact now on Munich 132.140. Goodbye. Air traffic controllers are used to handling tricky situations. But tonight, Peter's equipment isn't working properly. And he's controlling two screens at the same time. Normally, his radar would warn of any impending collision. What he doesn't know is that tonight, it's out of action. Correct. What is your present heading? Roger. Right turn, heading 280, vector ILS 24. Right heading 2804, to expect ILS 24, Aeroloid 1. Peter wants to get this Aeroloid flight off his hands. He tries dialing the public number for the Friedrichshafen control tower for the third time. Meanwhile, the Russian airliner and the DHL plane are still heading towards each other at a closing speed of over 800 miles per hour. Neither crew is aware that they're only two and a half minutes apart. The DHL plane is now approaching the Swiss border with Germany. The Russian Tupolev is heading for exactly the same spot and at the same altitude. Finally, someone at another air traffic control center in Germany spots the danger. He grabs the phone to warn Nielsen, but can't get through. International air traffic rules prevent him from talking to the pilots directly. Now, for the first time, the Russian pilots can see the DHL plane on the screen of their TCAS anti-collision computer. But Peter Nielsen is still focused on getting the Aero Lloyd flight safely down. Aero Lloyd 1135? Aero Lloyd 1135, go ahead, sir. Yeah, I lost my connection to Friedrichshafen Airport. Could you please call them on your second set, uh, 124.35? Uh, tell them you're coming in ILS 24 with 20 miles now. Okay, will do. Thank you. Okay, taking over. On the DHL cargo plane, the crew is relaxed. They don't know they're on a collision course. Their TCAS hasn't sounded a warning yet. Stuff I can get you? The first officer goes to the washroom. On the Russian plane, the pilots are getting concerned. The other plane is getting closer and closer but they're not exactly sure whether he's on the same altitude as them. 
is going below us. Why below? 500, no, 100 meters. Traffic, traffic. No fucking traffic. Why? Traffic, traffic. TCAS, the collision avoidance computer, is warning the Russian pilots that the other plane is getting too close for comfort. At the same moment, the TCAS in the DHL cockpit detects the Russian plane. Descend, descend. Peter Nielsen finally realizes what's happening. Uh, Bravo Tango Charlie 2937, descend flight level 350. Expedite, I have crossing traffic. Descend. Captain Gross disengages the autopilot and starts to descend. Climb, climb. TCAS is telling them to climb. The controller is telling them to descend. It says climb. He is guiding us down. Bravo descent? Tango Charlie 2937, descend level 350, expedite descent. Expedite descent level 350. Peter Nielsen thinks he's averted a collision by telling the Russian plane to descend. But what he doesn't know is that the DHL pilots have received a TCAS instruction telling them to descend. Increase! descent. They're trying to tell Nielsen that they have a TCAS instruction to descend, but Peter can't hear them. If both planes obeyed TCAS, there'd be no problem. But the Russians, instead of climbing, have followed the controller's orders. Now both planes are diving towards each other. He's going below us. Fuck, what is it? of the DHL clips the belly of the Tupolev, tearing it apart. The pilots soon lose consciousness. The DHL struggles on for another two minutes. four miles away. Can we go uh, over to uh, Affirm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peter is unaware of what just happened. Bravo Tango, Charlie, 2937. Bravo Tango, Charlie, 2937. Good Charlie. This is the nightmare that every controller hopes will not happen to him. Two of his aircraft colliding, 
killing scores of people. Oh. Peter Nielsen leaves the control room for the last time, but his story is far from over. The wreckage of the two planes has fallen just outside the small city of Überlingen on the German-Swiss border. Wreckage is scattered over 130 square miles. It's the worst mid-air collision in German post-war history. Debris comes raining down around a school for handicapped children run by Bruno and Stella Wegmüller. The sky was orange, red, flaming, and we saw these pieces falling down and detonations again and again, and we realized it couldn't have been a normal thunderstorm. It was something we had never heard and seen before. It was uh, incredible because uh, there are many, many houses here, and uh, there was nothing on this place. But around our school, we find bodies, children. We very soon also realized that we couldn't do anything really. We, we couldn't save anyone, we couldn't help anyone. Today actually some people still suffer and see the pictures and have to learn to deal with these pictures and for other people it is like a, a, a bad dream. The problem was that the bodies and debris were dispersed over a very, very wide area, approximately 40 square kilometers a corridor 20 kilometers long and two kilometers wide. It was the largest police operation in the province of Baden-Württemberg, lasting a week and involving over 6,000 people searching for the bodies. The people were all very sad. They were all in a state of extreme shock, and naturally the rescue team could feel that and empathized with their suffering. The policeman is standing where the DHL crashed. Here you see no more trees. The trees have completely burned down. We assume that the turbines of the Boeing separated first, approximately 700 to 800 meters high, before this plane crashed. One landed 300 meters that way, and the other turbine was another 500 meters that way. In this garden lay many of the bodies of the children of Ufa. In this part, uh died 28 children. In this field, um, there was a child. More over here, in this field, there was a, here, um, When they showed a close-up of an airplane, I saw an emblem of our Bashkir Airlines on the rear of the aircraft. I was in the kitchen. Everybody was still asleep. I nearly fainted. I leaned to the table. I didn't know what to do. The Hananov family lost their only daughter. Irina Degtarieva lost her only child. We hoped for some kind of a miracle, that he missed the plane. 
In a word, we didn't want to believe in this news. It was like thunder in a clear sky, and God forbid anyone gets news like this. Vitaly Khaloyev, the Russian architect, was awaiting his family in Barcelona. He's one of the first to arrive in Jubilingen. Although the relatives are not encouraged to participate in the search, Vitaly cannot help himself. Vitaly finds a broken pearl necklace. He recognizes it as his four-year-old daughter's. My angel. <laughs> Amazingly, amidst all the carnage, Vitaly finds his daughter's body intact. She did not suffer at all. The mutilated bodies of his wife and son won't be found until later. Over six days of searching, the rescue workers gather bodies and body parts scattered all over the southern German countryside. By Thursday of that week, two days later, the relatives started arriving. They could not all see the bodies we'd found because most of the bodies were badly charred or mutilated. We didn't permit the relatives to view the bodies in that condition. In Ufa, in Western Russia, both Christian and Muslim communities are devastated by the loss of their children. In the cemetery, where 53 of the people in the Tupolev are buried, there are two double rows of gravestones, with the Christian Orthodox on one side and the Muslims on the other. It's eerily reminiscent of the seating arrangement on the plain. The monument evokes a flight of paper planes frozen in flight. This is Kirill's grave, the young, talented artist. And this is Alina's, the 12-year-old gymnast. Vitaly Khaloyev, who lost his entire family, 
has designed and built a huge monument in their memory. Day and night, he lingers at the cemetery, inconsolable. Skyguide in Zurich, after the collision, work has all but come to a standstill. People were in a state of shock. They were shocked, they were helpless, there was a lot of sadness, people crying. And we were criticized for being too technocratic after the accident. I have to accept that. Uh, one of the biggest tasks was to maintain operations because there were planes coming in, going out after this tragedy, and that was a very, very difficult situation for everybody. For the next three weeks at the Zurich Air Traffic Control Center, capacity is reduced for lack of available controllers. Peter Nielsen never again worked on an air traffic workstation. If you go through something like that, you're not able to come back. It's too deep in, and it's too, too big. From an emotional point of view, of course, it was shattering. And so it was, for me, really, really terrible. Terrible in the sense that um, it happened to one of my colleagues, it happened to our profession, but it also happened to, to families who, who lost their children. The hunt begins for a scapegoat. If two planes collide in empty skies, someone must be to blame. At first, some suspect the Russians. The pilot of the Russian plane is said to have ignored repeated instructions from air traffic controllers. And while the repeatedly, they contacted the Russian pilot and asked him to change altitudes because he was flying at a level where he should not have been. Now, the Russian pilot never responded to those warnings from air traffic control. The Russian pilots, particularly in Soviet times and also now, but to a lesser extent, were extremely well trained. I have no concerns about the training of pilots. They've been trained for almost every operational possibility that could happen. Why did the TCAS device meant to avoid collisions, in this case, maybe help cause one? And why didn't the Russian plane descend when first ordered? A language problem? Controller commands are always in English. I knew everybody from that crew. Uh, everybody uh, knew English enough to speak uh, with controller. So who is to blame? The media spotlight now falls on controller Peter Nielsen. He was the man who'd guided the two planes towards each other. They were under his control. He must have caused them to collide. I was as shocked as I could have been with any other name or any other colleague. I was just very sorry for him. The media coverage about the, the incident very often makes you angry because these statements are taken out of context. Uh, they, you really get the impression that they just want to fill the newspaper, they, they write whatever they get. They go after colleagues, they give them a call at home, they 
like uh, follow you wherever you are. You don't deserve to be the boogeyman for everybody, and that's something which which really uh, is is still very difficult to accept. That suddenly we are some sort of having to to take the blame because the others are dead or or, or the others are hiding behind. Uh, politics, rules, and things like this. Uh, we started to leave this building by, uh, by the underground exit, uh, which leads through another building, just not to see anybody. They were asking people on the street in Kloten, people who were not involved at all, just to, to broadcast something in the evening. And that makes you angry, and you cannot uh, resist it. And what more do we know about this Swiss controller at the center of the investigation? He was chased by the media. He was accused of being a murderer. He's the man, obviously, everyone wants to talk to, but at the moment, the Swiss say he's in no position to talk. And we heard today that the Swiss authorities have opened an investigation to see whether there's enough evidence for charges of manslaughter. The accusation was uh, mans manslaughter by negligence in 71 cases. and. Uh, the speciality is that the, in this case the investigating judge has been working on, on an investigation on his own independently from what the Aviation Investigation Board of Germany did. Meanwhile, that investigation is underway, headed by Germany's air crash detectives, the BFU. By the fifth day, they've read all the black boxes. So this is a typical voice recorder, which was built into the Tupelo 154. It shows two reels. The recording time of this recorder is uh, 30 minutes. And this is rather solid, but the original voice recorder of the Tupelo was heavily damaged. So we had to remove the tape and replay it on such a specialized tape recorder. This is the hangar where wreckage of the planes was examined. This one here is the lower surface of the right wing of the Tupolev, and that remaining stub here went below the Tupolev and caused these scratches. That uh, top part of the vertical tail uh, remained at the accident site uh, on the main wreckage of the Boeing. But could this accident have been avoided? TCAS normally has a safeguard mechanism called a reversal. If an alert is issued and one aircraft crew ignores an instruction, TCAS orders a reversal. If the TCAS on aircraft A senses that aircraft B is still on a collision course, it will tell it to go in another direction. But it didn't. Why? One of the major requirements for that is that both planes have to be at least 100 feet apart in altitude. But this requirement was not met at the time. That's why no reversal was given. When the DHL's TCAS saw that the Tupolev wasn't climbing, it could only tell its pilots to descend even faster. Increase descent. If the reversal had been possible, the children of Ufa might have lived. July 2003. Many parents returned to Jubelingen in Germany for the first anniversary.
The Germans built a memorial on the site of the tragedy. It's made up of a series of giant silver pearls on a broken necklace. The head of Skyguide is among the crowd. Can you tell us, what are the mistakes you made? I don't think this is the time to talk about it. I'm sure you'll understand. Have you apologized? Okay. Thank you. Among the parents is Vitaly Kaloyev. He asks the head of Skyguide which controller was responsible for the accident, but receives no answer. Yes, in fact, the man asked if it is possible to meet the controller, to meet Peter, and uh, the answer was, it is not possible. The request passes almost unnoticed, but Vitaly Khaloyev is not satisfied. Descent. Crossing. Meanwhile, Descent. as the investigators Descent. work, they discover a fog of confusion surrounding TCAS. When it was introduced 20 years previously, there'd been a fatal omission. Descend flight level 350. Expedite. I have no one said coming. what should happen if there was a conflict between what TCAS was saying and what the controller was saying. It says climb. There's no hard and fast rule to guide the pilots. He is guiding us down. Whilst pilots in the West have always been taught to obey TCAS. TCAS descent. In the rest of the world, it's anyone's guess. We're not accustomed to not trusting controllers. In civil aviation, there were lots of situations when pilots didn't follow instructions of the controller, and that led to plane crashes or other accidents. The mentality of, of Russians is still very much in the lines of the old Soviet ways, and they're much more inclined to follow instructions than to do what they think may be appropriate. They always reckon that the other guy knows better. The potential for a terrible accident was there, and a year and a half before the Yubalingan tragedy, it nearly happened. Over Japan, two jumbo jets with 677 people aboard came so close that they filled each other's windscreens. The violent avoidance maneuver caused 100 people to be injured, some of them seriously. This was seconds away from being the worst plane crash in aviation history. Once again, a pilot had listened to the controller instead of his TCAS. It should have served as a warning to everyone. Yet from IKO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, there was only silence. IKO is responsible for drawing up the rules of commercial aviation. German investigators say that their vagueness about how to use TCAS was one of the reasons for the Überlingen disaster. I think this is the first time that I remember any major accident investigation, the one done by the BFU, fingering any of the, any of the aviation authorities in any serious way. And this is a serious way. So I think this is quite unique. 
If ICAO had carried out a detailed investigation of the incident in Japan and made recommendations that led to changes in procedures, this probably would not have happened. ICAO did not feel it necessary to get involved in this, and they left it entirely up to the Japanese authorities. Had it been a collision, maybe they would have got involved. After this near miss, the Japanese government immediately asked for their guidance. But unfortunately, ICAO only acted on the request 18 months later, after the Ubalingan disaster. Perhaps the ICAO procedures and standards, but in particular operating procedures for airborne collision avoidance, were somewhat ambiguous or open to interpretation. The Japanese incident was not the only warning ICAO received. In the two years leading up to the Ubalingan collision, four other near misses happened in Europe alone because one set of pilots obeyed air traffic control instead of their TCAS. If I have to summarize the advice that we gave the world, if a warning comes from ACAS, pilots should immediately follow it at all times. With the benefit of hindsight, you always ask yourself, could we have done more? And an accident is a wake-up call for everybody. All of these regrets are of little comfort now to the grieving parents of Ufa. Everything that was good is in the past and was connected with my child. All the hopes, dreams were connected with him, with his future. And now nothing left. At least I've got nothing left. So the right way to put it is, my life didn't change. It stopped. Our pain doesn't go away, you know. It's getting stronger every year. It's getting harder to live. At first, we had a hope that she'd come back, that time would pass and things would fall into right places. And now the hope is gone. And the worst thing is, is that the kids were flying happy. Healthy kids were going on a vacation. And some grown-up people made a mistake, made a fatal mistake and the kids were gone. She was loved. She was very kind, gentle. She was the beloved daughter, beloved daughter. This is Kirill's room. Everything in this room is like it was when he was alive. Nothing's changed. After he was killed, there were also two exhibitions. One exhibition took place here, in Ufa, while the other one was in Germany, in Überlingen. And that's Kirill's last painting. He was really glad. He planned that he'd finish it when he'd get back. Vitaly Haloyev, the Russian architect, has lost his entire family, everything. 
he himself has gone to pieces. He's become obsessed with finding out who is responsible for the collision. Kaloyev decides to travel to Zurich to play out the last tragic chapter in the Ubalingen story. On February the 24th, 2004, a stranger calls at the house of the controller, Peter Nielsen. saddest thing you can imagine. I knew his family, I know, I knew how much he loved his kids and his wife and, and uh... The presumed perpetrator is apparently 48 years old and of Eastern origin. He is likely the father of one of the families that was killed at the crash. He likely lost his wife and both their children. They found Vitaly Kaloyev nearby in a hotel. Suspected but not yet charged with the murder, he's presently in a psychiatric clinic while they decide whether he's fit to stand trial. Did he have the capacity to discern? Was it an impulse or did he have the capacity to commit a crime? Certain traces and police evidence were found which seemed to indicate that he could be the murderer. We are working on this theory after the accused himself conceded that he could be the murderer. We didn't want him to be killed. We didn't want to have more victims related to that catastrophe because of our children. The killing of the flight controller was a very, very sad event. And this, the saddest thing of all was that he was not actually responsible for the accident. The system responsible for the accident was the poor sky guide management and quality control of their system. The investigators had worked out exactly what went wrong that night at Skyguide and how an unfortunate series of events had made disaster almost inevitable. First, Peter's colleague goes for a break, leaving him alone to watch two radar screens several feet apart. It was a standard practice at the ATC company that at night, one air traffic controller was responsible for controlling the entire airspace of ATC Zurich. Then, following management instructions, the maintenance men start to switch things off. Peter's radar screen is working more slowly and will not warn him if two planes are about to collide. He doesn't know that. During the maintenance work, the radar system had to be run in fallback mode. In fallback mode, the controller has no STCA available. STCA is short-term collision alert a warning on the radar screen that planes are in imminent danger of collision. He did not know that the STCA system would not be available. 
Then by chance, an unexpected aircraft, the Aero Lloyd tourist plane, arrives at the critical moment and needs a lot of attention. It completely distracts Peter. He tries to get outside help, but the main phone system has been accidentally disconnected by the maintenance crew, and the backup phone isn't working. The controller has been robbed of all the technical support he needs. The phone link with Friedrichshafen was down. At this time, there were various radio transmissions, and the controller had to answer them on the different frequencies. Finally, when both planes are descending, the DHL pilots cannot tell him what's happening because the radio frequency is busy. 600 The earliest they could do that was 23 seconds later because until then, the frequency was blocked by the ATC Zurich transmission to the Tupolev crew. May 2004. It had taken the German BFU investigators 22 months to publish their final report. They found that the disaster had two major causes. Firstly, Peter Nielsen was too late in noticing the danger of a collision. Secondly, the Russian crew was wrong to obey him when he told them to descend, rather than their own TCAS equipment telling them to climb. But other pilots understand their dilemma. The TCAS commands are spoken in such a dispassionate voice. Descend, increase descent, such a matter-of-fact type of voice. And then there's the voice of the air traffic controller's urgent command. Descend immediately, leave this altitude immediately, go to another altitude at once. So, whichever voice sounded more urgent was the one the crew obeyed. Finally, the report severely criticized Skyguide for leaving a lone controller on duty that night. We have learned our lesson, and we don't have single manned operations or only one controller in front uh, of a monitor anymore. This might happen again. Another badly organized air control service or a crew might make a mistake. You're guilty or not guilty. That's not the meaning of a final report. The meaning of a final report is facts. What has happened? Why did it happen? What are the lessons to be learned? Safety requirements. Why didn't they provide safety during that flight, when my child was on board? They must take the responsibility for not providing security for that flight. Mistakes were made by us also, and we regret them deeply. We acknowledge our responsibility as set out in the BFU report, and we ask the families of the victims for forgiveness. At Skyguide in Zurich, a rose now sits in a vase in memory of Peter Nielsen and the tragedy of Uberlingen.